If you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, in the blue Bibles, that is on page 981. Before we come to God's Word, let us ask for His help to give us understanding this morning. <clears throat> oh, Father, we do thank you that you have set aside time every Lord's Day for us to hear your word, to sit under it, to reflect upon it, to be taught by it. Lord, we pray again that your Holy Spirit would be at work to illuminate this text, to help my words show us what you have to teach us, and that you would grow us up into maturity this morning. I pray all of this in the name of our Lord. Amen. And we come again, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, down through verse 21, which is the end of the chapter. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Most of you have probably heard the truism that was made popular by Benjamin Franklin, that nothing in life is certain except death and taxes. And yes, living in Michigan in February, most of us probably think death is coming for us all. And then you get to April and you think, how much did I pay this year in taxes? Where is my money going? By having worked our way through Philippians and now coming to this passage, I'd like to submit another truism that is just as certain that living in meaningful Christian community, which every Christian is commanded to do, so living in meaningful Christian community will eventually lead to substantial disagreements about faith and life. And the mark of Christian maturity is knowing how to walk with others through those disagreements in a way that honors Christ. That is our main point, the big idea for this morning. If you live in meaningful community, you will eventually have a substantial disagreement, a conflict with someone in the church. So the question is, how do we 
know how to deal with those disagreements. We deal with them in maturity. So why do I say that this is just as certain as death and taxes? After all, don't we have God's perfect word? It's inspired, inerrant word that he uses to teach us. Don't we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that reveals God's truth? Don't we have renewed hearts and minds that we can understand who God is? The answer is yes, we have all of those things. But we also have remaining sin that dwells within us. Yes, we have been renewed, but we have not yet been fully remade. As Paul says in in verse 12, we are not already perfect. And on top of that, still having sin remaining in us, we as Christians are called to live in fellowship with one another. And that doesn't mean just showing up on, on Sunday and sort of smiling and waving across the sanctuary. And then the rest of the week, we just disengage from the church. No, we are called as Christians to share our lives with one another, to to be in each other's homes, to know one another well so we can bear one another's burdens, so we can lift one another up. There is a depth and intimacy of relational connection that is required and commanded in God's word for the Christian. I don't know if you've ever worked with a colleague or coworker that was just a handful. Just seem to be always in the middle of some workplace drama. And so you just kind of take the long way around the office to the coffee pot in the morning. I've done that. Sometimes that can be a legitimate way to deal with difficult people at work. But in the church, you have brothers and sisters in the faith. Brothers and sisters that you are united to, that you have made covenant promises to. And keeping those brothers and sisters at an arm's distance to avoid any potential messiness is just a non-starter in the Bible. Isolated Christianity is unfaithful Christianity. I understand that there are different temperaments. Some people are just way more introverted, and meeting new people is really hard. I understand that. I get that there's there's different stages of life. They're going to draw you in different directions. There's different capacities within your week. There's different availabilities given your life stages and just what you have going on. All of that, I understand. But be that as it may, the direction we ought to be pointing with our lives ought to be one pointing towards community, not towards isolation. Even for the most introverted, the busiest schedule, the the direction you ought to be aiming at is greater community, not withdrawing yourself into isolation. So what happens then when Imperfect sinners develop close personal relationships with one another. 
there's going to be conflict. There's going to be disagreements. And so what do we do when those disagreements arise? Well, that's going to depend on the nature of the disagreement. But being able to discern that nature and to respond accordingly and appropriately takes maturity. It takes wisdom. And the more that you grow in an understanding of the grace that you have in the gospel, and the more you grow in understanding of yourself and who you are in relationship to Christ and who you are in relationship to those around you, the better able you will be to appropriately handle those disagreements in the church. So here's our basic outline for this morning, where we're going with this text. We'll look at the basis for maturity. How how do we grow up into that wisdom that I just said we need to have to respond appropriately? Then we're going to see the two types of disagreements that Paul has in this passage, and we will close then with the hope that there is for broken sinners. So the basis for maturity, where does Christian maturity come from? We see the maturity begins with humility, and it grows the more we understand grace. And why do I say that humility is the basis for maturity? Well, it's because of Paul's opening command. Look at verse 15. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And as he says that, there is a bit of irony and a bit of wordplay that Paul is employing to make his point. The word that he translates here as maturity is the same word that he uses earlier in verse 12 when he says that I'm not already perfect. So this repetition that he uses is meant to make his reader pause and and reflect on what seems to be an apparent contradiction. Well, Paul, first you said you're not perfect, and now you're saying those of us who are perfect ought to think this way. What what gives with that? Are you perfect or are you not? He, He wants us to reflect on this conundrum, and he wants us to understand that the right way, the mature way, the perfect way to think of ourselves begins with recognizing that we are not perfect. If you want to rightly understand the world, you need to understand that you are a fallen human being. When my kids go to school every week, uh, we have a morning assembly, and we ask a set of catechism questions. One of the questions asks, what does this pursuit of wisdom require? It's a good question to ask as you start your school day. The answer is the pursuit of wisdom requires humility. I recognize that I do not and cannot know it all. Why would that question be necessary as we start our morning at school? Well, it's because if you think you know it all, you're not coming ready to learn. You're going to sit in judgment over your teachers, over your classmates. We need to recognize we need a, a humility that there are things left for us to understand. Same is true of the Christian life. If you think 
you're perfect. To think you've got it all together and everybody else needs to figure it out. Think that you've already attained full sanctification, that you fully understand the person of God and the work of Christ. Then when you encounter others who haven't arrived where you have, your posture towards them is going to be one of impatience, one of self-righteousness and arrogance. You're going to think to yourself, why can't you figure this out? This is so obvious. Anyone can see. This is plain as day. You're, you're just so stupid that you can't see things my way because my way is obviously right. On the other hand, the perfectly humble person says, yeah, I get it. I, I've struggled with that too. Let, let me help you understand. Let me explain this to you once again. Christian maturity begins with humility, recognition that I am not yet perfect, and we will not be perfect until the day of Christ. And this humility grows the more we understand God's grace towards us. What's the second half of the command that we just read a moment ago? Paul says, if you're mature, you will think this way. You'll have this mindset. You think, think what way, Paul? What are you referring to? Well, it's really the way of all of verses 1 through 14, all that he has laid out of, of letting go of your self-righteous deeds in order that you may gain Christ. It's, it's recognizing that you're still imperfect. It's pressing on towards the heavenly goal because of what Jesus has done for us. She says, if you want to be mature, you need to continue to understand all of this measure of grace and that how that grace then fuels your obedience to Christ. The more you understand that gospel message, Paul says, the more you are going to grow in humility. And think about where else in this letter has Paul called us to have a specific mindset. Remember the beginning of chapter Two, as he begins the whole section on unity within the body. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Again, it's, it's repeating the exact same thing as here in our verse. He says, have the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then what does he do? He goes on to explain the humility of Christ, the emptying of his glory to come and to serve his people and to die a death on the cross for his people. Paul is telling the Philippians, you need to have that mindset among yourselves, one of humility that understands who your Savior is. And so once again, he is reminding us, if you want to be mature, you look to Christ, your humble servant, as your example. Reminded of his work on the cross, which is meant to humble us into the same form of a servant that he took on. So again, I'll, I'll tell you, if 
maturity begins with humility, then the more we understand Christ's greatness and God's holiness and perfection, and the more we understand our fallenness, the more we're going to understand God's grace to us and grow into humble maturity. I think if you have a low view of God and a high view of yourself, then there's not much work that Jesus needed to do in order to save you. Maybe just polish you up around the edges. That's again going to lead you into pride and into arrogance. It's only when we rightly see our sin and see our Savior that we can fully understand his grace. So Christian, if you want to grow into maturity, begins with humility. And that humility grows the more you understand all that God has done for you in Christ. So from that humility-born, grace-driven maturity, that Paul can then address the Philippians. And in his address, we see two different types of disagreement that he has. It's our next heading. The first disagreement is his patient forbearing. He just told them, if you're mature, you are going to think this way. It's the way that Paul thinks. And he says, if, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. What's he saying there? He's saying there's going to be some points which you may disagree with me on, that you may not yet see eye to eye. So how does he respond to that? He says, well, I'm going to entrust your thinking, your perspective to the God who knows all truth and reveals all truth. And Paul is speaking to his beloved friends, his partners in the gospel. And he is confident enough in their relationship that he can be patient while they pray, while they seek the Lord's wisdom in their disagreements. It's a good word for some of us, I think. Think, here is the Apostle Paul speaking with complete apostolic authority that has been given to him by Christ. He would have every right to say, if you think differently than me, you're a dummy. And you need to pull your head out of the sand and get it together. Right? If anybody has the right to say that, it's the Apostle Paul. And instead, what does he say? His brothers, sisters, we're not quite eye to eye on some matters. And that's, that's okay. You keep praying, keep searching the scriptures, keep asking God's help, and, and he will eventually show you the truth. Paul is patiently trusting God to work in the lives of his friends. And yet, how often do we not apostles, not prophets, we get so quick to insult, to belittle, to scoff at anyone who doesn't share our opinion on even some of the most trivial matters of the faith. How many churches have divided over things that have more to do with preference than truth? Again, we're not apostles. And we have half the patience and twice the pride that Paul displays 
to these believers. It's a good word for us to think how we interact with those we disagree with. Now, do hear me out in this. I'm not arguing for some sort of theological relativism where we just say, well, I believe one thing, you believe another, and we'll be okay, and we'll go our separate ways. We can both hold sincere beliefs and both be right. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not advocating for, let's just major on the majors and the rest we, is not important, so we don't need to discuss it. We don't need to have debates or disagreements on the minor points. I'm not saying that either. There is such thing as right and wrong. There is only one truth. And even minor points of doctrine are important because they connect together and influence the way we see the rest of Scripture. So we are to have theological convictions. We are called to study and to wrestle over God's Word, to know what we believe. I think I've thought about a lot of things. I think most of my views are right. I think all of us think our views are right. That's why we hold those views. And sometimes people say, yeah, I'm probably wrong, but well, if you're probably wrong, just change your mind. That, that's just false humility. We, we have convictions. That is okay. So we all think we rightly understand the world, and we should. We all ought to be striving for greater clarity. But what we need in that striving is just a little more humility. It says, you know, it's possible. I could be wrong. Let me examine my own heart. And then says, even when I'm right, it is only by God's grace that I can know and understand what he says. And so we can patiently walk with one another while we humbly disagree. That, that's what Paul is pointing us towards. Again, look at Paul. Look at how he ends his exhortation. After just saying, you know what? I'm going to trust this to the Lord. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. He's saying we have enough common ground on what we do believe about the gospel. We can keep patiently working through our disagreements. Every year, I go to our General Assembly, which is where all of the pastors and elders in our denomination meet, and we debate various matters regarding the church and doctrine and just how we ought to be functioning as a body. And it's not uncommon during these debates as disagreements arise for one side to, to, to rise up and accuse the other side of disrupting the unity of the church by telling somebody that they're wrong. But again, it's a false understanding of unity. Simply putting forward something that you believe to be true and, and pointing out error in a brother, that's not disrupting any unity. This is actually what Paul has just done. He says, here's how we understand our relationship to God. And if you disagree with me, God will show you the truth. Paul's pointing out error. And yet, in the midst of pointing that out, there, the unity that he has with the Philippians is not at stake. He can recognize that there's still enough that they hold in common, that they're still united together in Christ, even as they wrestle through their disagreements. So again, 
I am not saying making truth claims is bad. I'm not saying that you can't have debates. But we must remember that even in our debates, we are called to approach our brothers and our sisters with humility and with patience, trusting that God will be at work to show them their errors and that he will be at work to show us ours. That is what Paul is pointing us towards in this first command. But there is a second group of people that Paul has to deal with, and he deals with them in a much different way. There is a time when someone is so far afield from the gospel that issuing a strong warning and a strong rebuke is necessary. Again, verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. We've already talked about that at the end of chapter 2, the need to look to examples of godliness that we have in our lives of those who are more mature to follow the pattern that they set forward. Again, Paul held up Timothy and Epaphroditus as those examples, and he's just reiterating that point again to the Philippians. Have people investing in you, discipling you, mentoring you, helping you to grow. So, so that's what he says they need to continue to be doing. Now he says, why is their example so important? Verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you, so this is an ongoing issue, and I tell you now, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That is very strong language. That is a lot different than how he spoke to the Philippians in verse 15. And we don't know who this group of people exactly is. We do see some clear characteristics that Paul uses to describe them. He has already warned the Philippians about them many times. So this group is known to the Philippian church. Paul weeps over this group. We also see that they are enemies of the cross, meaning that they are outside of the faith. You wouldn't use that language to describe someone who still holds to the gospel message. So most likely, though again, this is some speculation, it seems that this is a group that were once a part of the Philippian church community and is a group that has wandered off into false teachings that have left them outside of Christ. And we see the driving forces that have led them into this danger is their blindness to their sin that stems from their worldly appetites. They have lost sight of the gospel message that they know very well because they want to pursue the things that suit them most. They don't care about Christ. They care about themselves. What can they fill up in their stomachs to satisfy their desires? What urges do I have that I want satisfied? I'm going to do whatever I can to feed myself. 
That's how Paul describes these opponents. Now, again, that can certainly include a whole list of sort of licentious behaviors, greed, drunkenness, and sexual morality, anger, and bitterness. They're, they're just filling up all of these worldly pleasures. Those have led a lot of people away from Christ and into judgment. But I think we also need to be careful. For I think there is a growing danger where Christians can find themselves wandering not into immorality and opposing Christ, but we can find ourselves opposing Christ under the guise of spiritual faithfulness. Because once again, Christians can begin to set their hopes too tightly onto worldly things. I'm going to be nuanced here, but it's important to mention. There is a strain of sort of post-millennial thought, not all post-millennialism, but there is a strain straying into things like Christian nationalism and sort of theocratic rule where they're arguing and hoping for a Christian prince who's going to be raised up and suppress the enemies of God and restore the worship of Christ in all of the nations. It's a vision that wants to see Christians conquer by coercion and not through conversion. It's where the hope of the gospel is wrapped up in the power of the state and not in the proclamation of the church. I mention all of this, not, again, because this is full-blown heresy and we need to go hunting for people. No, I mention this because it, it is gaining more traction within Reformed circles. And it is a doctrine and a worldview that is about half a step away from becoming a social gospel where the mission of the church has to do more with establishing earthly institutions rather than proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And secondly, because the manner of this movement is becoming increasingly triumphalist and combative rather than sacrificial and humble. So the same earthly desires that Paul's opponents in Philippi had that led them away from the Christ, beginning to see that same earthly desires, making this our home and doing whatever we can to establish our rule and reign on the earth is popping up within the church. And so we need to be careful that we do not fall victim to the same earthly passions, the same hungers that Paul's opponents had as well. But this is not a sermon on Christian nationalism. It is a sermon about how mature Christians deal with disagreement within the church. And rather than take the approach of leaving disagreements up to God, now Paul issues a clear warning to the Philippians and a clear rebuke to these opponents. So what's the difference? When... Do you patiently forbear, and when do you issue a strong warning? Well, the difference is that one group is still holding on to what they have attained in Christ, and the other group has walked away from that heavenly prize for their own earthly enjoyment. 
So knowing the difference between patient forbearance and strong warnings is knowing the difference between the gospel being believed and the gospel being set aside. And the further that someone is wandering from the hope of Christ, the more strongly you are called to warn them. And again, strong does not mean brash or heavy-handed. Strong means firm and clear. As Paul said in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. All throughout Scripture, the Bible reserves the harshest words for the fiercest wolves. When dealing with weak and wayward sheep, there's always a measure of gentleness and of patience that is exhibited. But when there are those who are disguised as shepherds who are leading the sheep astray, that is where the church and Christians are called to be clear in our warnings and in our condemnation. And the more you know the gospel, the more you understand how it touches all of life, all of the implications that flow from it, the more you will know how to respond to those disagreements within the church. As one mentor of mine said, as you know, pastors, we walk around carrying a bucket of water and a bucket of fire or a bucket of gas. You got all these fires. You need to know which bucket to use at the right time. That, that is essentially what Paul is laying out for us here. Sometimes you need a gentle arm around your brother and, and a little encouragement in the right direction. And sometimes you need to stand up strongly and clearly and confidently and declare what is true and to warn people who are wandering off into myths. And the more we know the gospel, the more we know which approach we need to take. Now, as we close this morning, you might notice in the outline that our final point is hope for sinners. And this might point you might be thinking, that's kind of an odd way to end. I don't quite know how that fits here. Well, first it fits because there's always hope for sinners. But Paul closes with this wonderful statement about our heavenly hope that contrasts the true gospel with these worldly-minded opponents who have their hearts and minds set on earthly things. And he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This text is meant to help the Philippians see the lies of their opponents, to be encouraged, to keep following the example that they have set for them in Paul and in their leaders. But it also, I think, helps serve the discussion that we've been having. Because we see that at the end of the age, Jesus makes everything right. All of our sins, all of our struggles, all of our imperfections, all of our inability 
to perfectly discern the mind of God. All of that is transformed. All of that is renewed, and we are made perfect. And not just you individually, Jesus perfects all of his church, all of our brothers and sisters that we've had these disagreements with throughout our lifetime. Even if you never solve those disagreements in this life, you both go to the grave with your opposing viewpoints. In the end, Jesus will be the perfect teacher who will make all things known. We're going to finally figure out all of the theological disagreements the church has had throughout the course of history. What is truth? What has God actually done for us? Who is he really? We'll know all of it because Jesus will teach us perfectly. We'll see that Jesus will subject all things to himself. There will be no longer any opposition to his reign. Even his enemies who oppose his cross will see the truth. And God's people will finally be vindicated. Those who have held fast to the gospel will be raised up in that last day. So this is hope for us. Because now we no longer have to live as though the truth dies with us. Yes, we want to know the truth. We want to love the truth. We want to proclaim the truth. But we are not the final bulwark of the truth. We are not the last line of defense. Jesus is. He is the truth. He upholds the truth. He is the one who teaches and proclaims the truth. The one who gives all the world eyes to see the truth. So I'll have to give us hope that we don't need to be strident in order to convince the world that we are right. We know the one who is right and will set all things in subjection to him at the end. So the Christian who rests in this hope, who rests in this gospel glory and grace, in this future coming kingdom, that Christian is then free, free to be more patient with their brothers and sisters, free to be more clear with their opponents, and free to be confident in our coming reward. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, that it, it, it does transform the way we understand our community transforms the way that we live with one another. Lord, we pray that you would continue to grow our humility as we see our sinfulness and we see your greatness and we see all that you've done for us that would help make us more like Christ, humble servants of one another. And that the way we interact with one, with one another would be marked by forgiveness will be marked by patience, be marked by forbearance. So that is how you've called us to live. We thank you for all the hope that we have in Jesus. Pray that we would rest in him. Amen.